Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. One of the things that we all have in common, and I mean all of us, we love stories. We love to sing them. We love to watch them. We love to read them. In fact, some of us, we love to tell them. We just love stories. And what we're going to see this morning is a long story. And it pictures a much greater meta story. When I was thinking about it, I thought about some of the stories that, that, just, that just came to my mind. And about 10 years ago, Natalia and I, we were in Boston and staying with some friends on the North End. And it was just, it was a great trip. Really, I didn't think it could be much better. We're running around New England buying books, which for me was great. I don't know about Natalia. So... Um, and so we were downtown Boston and, and Natalia said, well, you just go to the bookstore you want to go to and I'm going to, I'm going to shop. Well, we had seen, we'd walked by Boston Opera House and saw that Wicked was there. And that was something we didn't know on our trip. We hadn't planned it. So we started looking at tickets and I'm like, babe, I'm, I'm not going to spend that to go see Wicked. It was my first time. I'd never seen theater before. And so I didn't know what I was missing. And so later on in the day, we're running around all over New England, and she's, well, we kind of need to get back. So what are you talking about? And so I, st- I pulled over and got gas, and when I was getting back in, there were two tickets on the front seat to go see Wicked. And I was like, are you kidding? You really spent that much? She's like, yeah. I was like, whatever, let's go. And so we got there, and let me just tell you, it was amazing. But we had tickets, and they were way up high, and it was good. But she saw two seats, three rows back, front and center, that nobody sat in the whole first half. So during the intermission, she goes, let's go down there. And I'm a chicken. I was like, well, what if we get in trouble? And she's like, no, let's go down there. So she went, and she asked one of the attendants, and she said, she goes, well, this is, it's full. Like, there's no, she's like, no, 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 there's two seats, front and center. And I know they're probably not supposed to. I don't know. Maybe it was just one of those blessings. She goes, sure. So Natalia waves me down, and I come down there. We sent front and center for Wicked. And those of you that have done it, you know. Like, it's the stuff. And I know some of you love theater. One of the best responses I've ever heard from this stage is when Danny went on about a three-second riff of Hamilton, and you guys went crazy right? We love stories. So I just kept thinking about the stories and and what I would go to to follow a good story. And I thought about a ski trip that we went on to Taos and how I didn't have to drive. Someone else powered through it. I got to sit in the back in a minivan and watch 13 straight hours, a band of brothers. I loved it. I mean, you, you don't get a much better story. And so Stephen Ambrose wrote the book that that was based off of, and I started thinking about it. Well, Undaunted Courage is one of my favorite books about the Lewis and Clark expedition by Stephen Ambrose. And I said, well, nothing like it in the world about the Transcontinental Railroad. And I know some of you are like, that sounds boring. No, Ambrose is a great writer that can tell a story. I mean, if he can make the Transcontinental Railroad a great read, I just, we just, we love stories. The story of Hollywood like Shawshank, Gladiator, 
Tombstone. I mean, that's like my, my top three. Some of you are like, well, you need to get. No, listen, we can all have our own top three. Our city group one day, we started talking about movies. None of us have the same taste, but we all love stories. And I just thought, those Hollywood stories, they've got nothing on the 10 chapters we're going to cover today. The 13-year story of David. It's got nothing on him. I mean, you start going through this story, and it's absolutely amazing what kind of movie that this would make. We saw a couple weeks ago that David was anointed king. And you just think, okay, God anoints him king. We just think the next chapter is going to be what? Him taking the throne and ruling. It doesn't happen like that. He goes back to being a shepherd. In fact, the next part of the story that we see is God places him, sovereignly places him in King Saul's court. And you know what's crazy? You read it in the story. God sent an evil spirit because of Saul's disobedience to him. And he wanted somebody to play the harp, the lyre. And it just says, and some boy said, I know a guy. He's talking about David. He's a man of war. He's a man of wisdom. He can play the harp. And so God sovereignly places David from shepherding into Saul's court. And then we start to see the story develop, and we're like, okay, I see where it's going. But then the next chapter, like last week we saw, David is the one that goes out while Goliath is mocking God and mocking the Israelites. And he's the one, and I don't know, I, maybe it's just, the, just the, the male part of me, just we love war. It's like, can you imagine him just picking up the five smooth stones and just putting them in his pouch? He's like, no, I don't need the armor. It makes me feel uncomfortable. He's just like, you know what, this isn't in my power. It's God's power. I'm going to go slay him. And you can just see him just, I don't even know what kind of sling, but it's just slinging. And the coolest part for me, and I'm just sorry, is when Goliath is laying there, and he takes Goliath's own sword and cuts his head off, and David grabs him by the hair and carries it around. Some of you are like, well, that's kind of violent. We watch violence all the time, don't we? We see David end back up in Saul's court. And really where the bitterness started setting in for Saul is they come back from battle and the women are out singing and dancing and they're saying Saul has slain his thousands but David his ten thousands. And I'm just going to be honest with you. If I was Saul, that would have that eaten at me. Because who's the king? Who's on the throne? Saul. What do you mean? What do you mean? They praise me and say I've slain my thousands, but David the ten thousands? And that's when his bitterness and envy and hatred of David began. In fact, just in this chapter, you're in chapter 18, David evades Saul throwing a javelin at him twice, trying to pin him against a wall. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm David, I don't probably ever go back into Saul's court. But he did. And I don't know what it looked like. Saul was so irritated and so jealous and enraged of him, he took a javelin and threw it to pin him against a wall. You're like, what? This is, this is a great story. And for some of you that you've never heard this story, hang on. It gets better. And it says that Saul stood in fearful awe of David, but yet he was trying to kill him. Have you ever noticed in your own life how when you fear something, you war against it? 
It says David went out and came in before the people. And what that means very simply is he was the one that wasn't always on his throne. He was the one that came in and out, warring where the people could see him. He was the people's king. Saul plots to kill David. And it says this in Psalm 59 is one of the psalms that we'll look at this morning. But the story of him, Jonathan, Saul's son, goes to his father Saul and says, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he's not sinned against you, because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his own hand, and he struck down the Philistine, Goliath, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it, and you rejoiced. Why will you sin against innocent blood by killing David? Now listen to these last two words. Without cause. You see that again in the Bible in John. David is a picture. He's a type of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died without cause. One of the things that you'll notice in the story today, David does nothing to deserve the persecution that he receives. He doesn't deserve anything to deserve the suffering. Like Christ, he didn't deserve any of it. There are some times that we go through times where it's because of our own sin, our unwise choices. And there are some times it's because there's an enemy that hates us. You go back to the story, and Jonathan warns David, my, my dad is going to kill you. David runs to Nob, and there's a priest called Elimelech. And there's a guy named Doeg there, and you're like, okay, why is that important? He'll come back later. But Saul's chief herdsman was there when David runs to this city, Nob. And if any of you guys are like, where is all this stuff? This is all happening pretty much right around what we know as Jerusalem. One interesting thing there is when David is there, he tells the priest, Elimelech, he says, I need food and I need a weapon. He's, well, why are you alone and why didn't you bring a weapon? He just said, well, the king sent me on some business. He didn't want to tell him and make him culpable in the story and accountable to having that knowledge where David was hiding and he was fleeing. And he said, well, I've got the sword of Goliath. Will that do? Can't you just see in the movie David grinning? Yeah, that'll do. That'll do. And he takes Goliath's sword, he's on the run, and he flees to Gath. And some of you are like, Gath, that means nothing to me. Do you remember where Goliath was from? This is about 12, 13 years after he slays Goliath. And he is so scared for his life that he runs, has to flee into enemy territory. And so he comes to King Achish, and he realizes this is not good. He starts viewing the situation, taking a read of the room. And so you know what David does? He acts crazy, like he's out of his mind. And so King Achish is like, well, he's no threat to me. Well, I don't need another crazy person. Get him out of my sight. And David flees. And then he goes and he hides in the cave at Adullam, which we'll see today. He wrote a couple of psalms, and we'll, we'll look at those. God blesses David with an army of 400 men. He knows he's going to need it. He can't hide and flee forever. He's going to have to have some men to fight. Saul kills Elimelech and 85 of the priests that were there at Nob. He hears that David had been there. Remember Doeg that I told you? Yeah, snitches get stitches. He didn't realize it. He gets his later. 
He's like, oh yeah, Saul, I heard that David was there. So he goes, and not only because he so has a conspiratorial mind that they're conspiring against him and hiding David and helping him, that he kills 85 priests and men and women and children. Saul's just enraged. They're helping David, or they might have helped David. David saves the city of Kilah from the Philistines. And this is an important part of the story. David is the only other person in Scripture that we see as prophet, priest, and king. David puts on the priestly ephod, and it's the only time picturing who? The perfect prophet and priest and king, Jesus Christ. The only other person to picture that. And David remained in the strongholds of the wilderness in the hill country of Zen, and Saul sought him, the next two words, every day. But God did not give him into his hand. Every day he was scared for his life. Saul pursues David. Saul almost captures David. He's almost, I mean, you could just see it in the movie. Like his men are moving and fleeing. And Saul is is pursuing him with about ten times as many men. And they're about ready. And then Saul gets a message that says, oh yeah, back home, the Philistines have started to conquer And they have to turn away from fleeing David and go and save home. You see the sovereignty of God and God's hand all the way throughout. Because who had he already anointed king? David. So could anything happen to David? No. God's covenant faithfulness and his faithfulness to David is amazing like it is to us. And this is the part we're all in the story today for us. Is that David in chapter 24 for Samuel has one opportunity to kill Saul. And two chapters later, he has another opportunity to kill Saul, and he doesn't. Saul said to David, after he spares his life, you're more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. And you think Saul finally realizes it. He gets it. Like when God said, I'm going to tear the kingdom from you. I reject you as king. You think he finally gets it. But like I said, two chapters later, a short time later, he tries to kill David again. And David says, as the Lord lives and the Lord will strike him, or this day will come to die, or he will go down into the battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed and take now the spear that is at the head in the jar of the water, and let us go. And a short time later, David yells across a field to Abner. Abner was, was Saul's protector, like the leader of his army. And David takes his spear in his water bottle and goes, Hey, Abner, how good of a job are you doing? Look what I've got. I snuck into the cave when he was sleeping, or was using the restroom, and I cut a little corner of his gown off. The next time I sneak into your camp while you're all sleeping and I steal his weapon and his water. How good of a job are you doing? And David mocks Abner. And Saul admits his foolishness. Now we go through all that. I want you just to think about this. So from way over here when God anoints him as king. To David actually reigning on the throne is 14 years. 
Now, for you, I don't know, but for me, I question, like, whenever God says you're going to be king, why doesn't he just do it? Like, we see him in control. Like, he controls how he gets in David's court. He controls keeping his life every day. He takes an army, and he turns them around when they're close to David. Like, God is in control. So why not just take him, you anoint him king, and make him king, and then he rules In fact, why can't you just give him a kingdom of peace? Why can't you make it easy? Anybody else with me? Like, you tell him that he's going to be king, and then 14 years later, you actually execute it for him. To me, I'm like, God, uh, can I interject for a minute? I don't think you know what you're doing. I think you're requiring a little too much of David. 14 years of running for your life for fearing for your life. 14 years of suffering and torment and anguish. God, uh, yeah, I think you might be a little uh, short-sighted on this. Because in my own life, I think, okay, you call me out to be a king. You call me out to be a king at salvation. And then I know one day what I'm going to get Like, I've got the earnest of my inheritance now, the Spirit of God. But I know one day I'm going to have a glorified body and I'm going to live with you forever. I don't understand, God, why I have to go through this 14 years of suffering. Right? Are you with me? Those of you that are are pursuing Christ and living the Christian walk, you know what I'm talking about. It's not easy. In fact, if you're looking at me right now and you're thinking, I understand because I'm trying to war against sin. Every day I war against sin. Like the Spirit of God wants me to live for Christ and live righteously, but I still have a sin nature that wants to go against God. Let me just tell you something. You're in a good place. What scares me is that there's some of you out there that you're like, man, this Christian life thing, it's easy. Like I just, like, it's just kind of easy. I think what you'll find is that you might think you're following Christ, but really you just do what you want to do. Like the majority of the time, you're just, whatever pleases, whatever is pleasure, whatever feels good, whatever sounds good, whatever hears good, and that scares me for you. You know what? I don't know why he saves us and takes us through a life, and it does. It's full of grace, and it's full of joy, and it's full of mercy, and it's full of those things because we also have the suffering. We also have the intense times in our lives where Christ is putting us through a trial, and he's putting us through the fire. And a lot of times we do feel the burn. We feel it. The reality of following Christ is just that. So how does this relate to us? You think about your inner struggle against the power of sin. Think about this. People's negative response to your relationship with Christ. I know a lot of us have been through it. In fact, our heart goes out to the, to the college students in here that will catch fire for Christ, that will begin a walk and a journey with him, and then someone comes along, whether a family or a friend, and says something to discourage them. Let me just encourage you. That word spoken against you, that may just be from God to help you and strengthen you 
and confirm your faith and to strengthen you in that. Those are the hardships we go through. You think about academia's disdain for Christ in the church. Some of you experienced it in your studies. You experienced it in your classes. Some of you are going to. Professors that mock you for being so silly and so childish and stupid that you would believe that God could actually reveal himself to you in his word and in the person of Christ. You're just silly. You're uneducated. Like once you're educated, you'll know better. You're silly. The spiritual oppression that you knowingly or unknowingly face because the enemy hates you. I hope you know this. At the moment of salvation, you become, you're such a worthy vessel for God that Satan, all he wants to do is corrupt that. So every day of our life, there is a spiritual world around us that hates us and that is being designed so that we won't live for Christ. That is the world we live in. Navigating the workplace of the world which operates mostly on the principles that are anti-Christ. Some of you navigate that every day. Well, they get ahead by lying and cheating and stealing. And God says, no, I call you to a higher ethic. Suffering the consequences of other people's sin and abuse against you. Do you see how it relates? Like when we're saved, when we decide to follow Christ, it's all not just roses, right? He says, you're going to have to learn these lessons. And so I thought, what's amazing about that 14 years that David walked through is that we get some of his heart. We get some of his wisdom. And I want to walk you through that today. Like, Stephen, how do we navigate that 14 years of our life that are going to be difficult like the Christian life, like, like what are some ways that we can navigate and we can walk out of here going, I know it's not going to always be easy, but when it is tough, these are ways that I can navigate through this. Two things I want us to take away from these six psalms. So during that 14 years, David has written what we know of six psalms from that time period while he's running and he's fleeing and he's being persecuted and I want to glean the goodness from those this morning with you. Two main points that I take out of those six psalms are that we should seek refuge in God's strength. As humans, we, we seek refuge in a lot of things. Relationships. We seek refuge in substances, whether legal or illegal, Right? We seek refuge and we try to cope in a lot of different ways. I want to encourage you this morning that every single one of us has the opportunity to just seek refuge in God's strength. You've got to just think, and when you read some of these, you're going to just like, David had no other place to turn. I hope that in our mind, we're people that think, I've just got no other place to turn, God first. To seek refuge in God's strength and then to sing praises of his steadfast love. So the first part of seeking refuge in God's strength is just crying out, crying out for him, for his refuge. Psalm 34 says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Now think about this next phrase. This is how David viewed himself. This poor man cried. 
And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Do you think David refers to himself as a poor man because he thinks he's got it all figured out? God has driven him to a point where he says, it's only me. It's only me. I offer you my refuge. And David just turns to him and says, this poor man needs you. One of the things that we read in the churches of Revelation to the church at Laodicea that is very indicative of the Christianity, the world that we live in, is that it's a people that thinks they're rich and thinks they have need for nothing. They're increased with goods. And God's, oh, no, 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 no. You're a poor man. You're a poor man that needs me. Psalm 56, 9, one of the other psalms, it says, Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. That God is for me. Even in his experience, David would have known, listen, I see what he does to other people, and he's keeping those nations. He's keeping them back. He's keeping Saul back from killing me, but he's for me. If God be for us, then who can be against us? The God, the creator, God of this world is for us, is for me. Part of David's mind and the mindset that he had. How many of you have noticed by now that what you speak to yourself is who you become? The things we speak, the self-speak, the people that speak into our lives, as a man thinks he is. These are the things that we speak to ourselves. Be merciful in Psalm 57. Oh God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Till the storms of destruction pass by, I will cry out to the Most High God. I love this next phrase. To God who fulfills his purpose for me. Some of you in here are like, okay, What's the whole purpose of the Christian life? Let me just tell you and just try to make it very simple. You don't have to figure out the purpose. God's told you he's the one that will do it. Seek refuge in him. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. You're going to see over and over and over in these six psalms that he that he says, that he sings, that he writes, that he praises. He always praises God for his steadfast love. The great thing about God and our relationship with him is that it's unconditional love. He's never unfaithful. No matter how good your spouse is or how good of a relationship you have, people always will let us down. God never does because of his steadfast love. Trusting in his refuge. So we cry out for his refuge we trust in his refuge. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Listen, there are a lot of us that grew up in a Christianity where it was always stated that it was like an intellectual knowledge. What well, do you believe? Do you believe? And yes, there's an intellectual knowledge, but it's a part so much greater of an experiential knowledge of knowing Christ. Salvation is experiential. It's not intellectual. He says, taste and see like I can, I've experienced the goodness of God. And those of us that have been on the journey a little longer, we know from the track record that along the way that God's always faithful and he's always good. We can taste it. We can see it. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 52, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance 
of his riches. And he says, I trust in the steadfast love of God. There are many things that we run to, to seek refuge in. We live in the wealthiest country in the history of the world. Just let that sink in. We're living in the wealthiest world that has ever existed. You're like, well, not everybody. I'm just telling you, what we call poor, the Bible does not. We are so extremely wealthy, and there's some people in here, there's many of us, we walk in here, we have wealth beyond the imagination of so many people in the world, and we trust in it. We trust in letters and numbers, 401k, we, just, we do. It makes us feel secure. You think if David would have had $8 million in the bank, that would have made his journey less painful? How do you get to the resources when someone's trying to kill you and chase you? And he just, and he's crying out in one of these psalms, and he says, I see other people that they trust in these things, but you can't. It's only God. Those things can disappear so quickly. He says in Psalm 56, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord word I praise, in God shall I trust and not be afraid. Now listen, this next phrase will be so important to so many of us. Because a lot of us, we have the temptation to trust in riches. But there's something else that I think a greater swath of us trusts in. He says, I won't fear what man can do to me. In fact, when you think about it, Jesus reiterates that in the Gospels when he says, don't be worried about people that can kill your body. Worry about the one who can kill your soul. Like who you truly are, the part of you that lasts forever. Some of us, we fear people so much, their opinion. We want to appease it, and we go through our whole life just trying to make people happy because it makes us feel good for a minute. When if we just pleased God and trusted him, it makes us feel good for ever. David says, I see people that trust in these things and it's unwise. We seek refuge in God's strength. You walk out of here today, I want you just to think, seeking refuge in God's strength. I want you to think, sing praises of God's steadfast love. And some of these are going to be praises from you. It's personal. It's with you and God. And he says this, I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever. One of the things that's said in the end times that will be uh, indicative of, of a generation is that they are a people that don't give thanks, that aren't thankful. Think about the things that God does for us and we be thankful. We sing him and we praise him for that. In Psalm 59 again, it says, But I will sing of your strength and I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress, a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. There has to be time in our life where we slow down, we reevaluate our lives, we inspect, and we just thank him and we praise him for his faithfulness, for his goodness, because he's been our refuge, he's been our strength. No matter how busy you think you are, you can't afford to stay that busy 
if you're too busy to just spend time alone with him in prayer and in his word, we all have that, that access to God, that time to thank him and to praise him. One of the most odd things that I saw in these six psalms, it really surprised me because I had never put all six together in the time period of this story is this next one. We see him praising God, just him and God. But we see him do something else with his praise. And it reminded me of this story being part of the greater story. He praises for others. Now, I don't know about you. I'm in a cave having been chased. And let's just say it's the fourth year, okay? Like four days, I'd be pretty tired. But let's just give me the benefit of the doubt. It's the fourth year. I'd be thinking about me and me only. Oh, woe is me. How bad this is. And even if I got to where I was praising God, it would all be about me. Because you and me were me monsters a lot, aren't we? But this is what David says in Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. I will praise his praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And listen to this. Let us exalt his name together. Isn't there something so precious and so sweet is when we come together in a gathering, and we all praise him together, it will heal our soul more than just us and him sometimes. It's what we need. It's how he designed us in community to gather together and to praise him. It's like you take whatever been, you've been suffering from or what's been difficult in your life where you've been struggling, and you put it aside for the good of everyone. Psalm 57, he says this twice. It's like a literary bookmark. It's chiasmic structure. He says this twice, so he's driving home a point. He says, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be all over the earth. And then right in the middle, he says this in Psalm 57, 9 and 10. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. You remember, we started this series, The Throne, and we've looked at this story, but right before that, we launched out into this with a mission statement. We exist to make disciples. Where? Here, but everywhere. Listen. David understood that when this happened, that this was just a distraction. Because one day he would sit on the throne and he would be able to influence the world for God. You notice how big this is? Because we think this happens, we go through this, and this is tough. But in this suffering, in this trial, in this despair, if we could just refocus and go, okay, this will not be a distraction. What am I to do? We would praise God to the nations because that's why we exist, to make disciples. 
It would help us focus. We would gain that. It just surprised me when I saw it. David knew exactly what he was doing. In 1 Peter chapter 5, it talks about people that are suffering persecution, Christians, like, like we can't imagine. There are people right now in the world, Christians, that are suffering like this, but we, we're suffering in a different way. If you haven't realized it yet, it might not have been God who blessed us with the wealth. I'll leave that there. Because the wealth sure does keep us distracted and suffering, doesn't it? He says this about people that are suffering like crazy. While you've suffered a little while. He's not just talking about 14 years. He could be talking about 50. But what he does, it's that that little dash on a tombstone. You're born, there's a dash, and there's an end date. He's talking about that dash, it's just a little while. We think, well, it's so long, but we are a vapor. Our life is a vapor, are we not? Peter says, while you suffered a little while, and it was to encourage them so they would have a, a grander perspective, an eternal perspective. Paul says in Corinthians, oh, uh, by the way, your light momentary affliction. Oh, well, thanks, Paul. <laughs> right? Your light momentary affliction. It feels pretty bad here, but when we take a grander picture of what we have in God, it's a light momentary affliction that's a little while. I want you to do me a favor, every single one of you. I want you to grab your phone. I want you to pull your phone out. I want you to go to your alarm. You're going to set an alarm for six days, starting tomorrow. You can even do it today if you want. For 1.42 p.m., 1.42 p.m., set an alarm. You can start today. Why not? But if you don't, start Monday through Saturday. So you know how I told you that there were six psalms that David poured his heart out about the suffering that he went through during this 14-year period? We looked at five of them today. Psalm 142 is a psalm that he wrote while he was in the cave, scared for his life, hiding from Saul. And what I want you to do is every day your alarm goes off, I want you to go to Psalm 142. So it's a reminder of what we've done here this morning, what we've heard. And I want you to read Psalm 142 and just spend a few minutes with God. I want you to seek his refuge and his strength, and just tell him, I'm a poor man. I seek refuge in you. And after that happens, I want you to sing praises to him and just praise him. Listen, I don't know if you know this about God. He loves for his creation, as Tyler said, to praise him. He loves it. Seek refuge in him and sing praises to him. If you would, if you're serving communion, go ahead and come on down. So for those of you that are new, um, we've changed it a few weeks ago. You will have three stations on each side. So you'll have one up here underneath the lights if you're in the front, and there'll be two more stations on each aisle going back. And as we take communion, it's a time for us just to reflect 
on Christ that suffered without cause for us because our sin demanded it. It's a time that we can come and remember his body being broken, and that's the bread. And we can remember the blood that was shed to wash our sins away. And so if you would, allow them just a second to get set up. If you would, go ahead and stand. And we will also have people down here that want to pray with you. If you just feel like this morning, like God has spoken to you, the spirit is drawing you, it's been heavy. You will have people down here that you can come and pray with, that care for you, that pray for you. So if you would, come to the table.